Well, hopefully you've already turned to 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 9. I may have said that wrong earlier in the service because I actually wrote it wrong on my notes right here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you made it to 2 Peter, you're real close anyway. This is a really powerful passage. There is so much here, far more than uh, we can touch, really. So um, I, I can't feed all of it to you. You'll have to, you'll have to pack leftover, leftovers and take it home for later. But 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand as we read the Word of God together and listen to His voice in it. Reading out the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We open it now as always with the expectation you have something to say to us in it and not just in the way of information, uh, but Lord, something in the way of life and truth and power that we have need of. We know that you know our needs better than we know our needs. You know what every heart here uh, is carrying. Lord, you know what we don't even know about ourselves. And so, God, I pray today, by your good intentions for your children, Lord, would you speak your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory, and knowing that it's for our good. And Lord, would you move me out of the way, as always, and use my voice as an instrument for you to communicate to your people. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I, I, I really should, I... I um, Gave a little teaser sort of introduction in the newsletter this, this week. I really uh, could offer, as by way of preface, sort of some credit to our small group for contributing uh, to inspiration for this message. We actually just finished reading this book uh, that I cited together, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand by uh, Paul Tripp. I had offered some quotes from him. And uh, it was just very enriching. And we just finished that up. But this passage is one of the concluding notes in that whole book, and it is just absolutely loaded. This passage that we just read 
is absolutely loaded with power and truth. And if you would give yourselves to it, um, you will be transformed by it. But I mentioned um, there that to one degree or another, life comes with struggles for everybody. And, and, and in fact, you, it wouldn't be far off to say life is a struggle. Not like it's constantly that way, but we never get to a point in life, we never reach a season in life where there aren't struggles. Even though somehow we keep hoping that we will reach that point. We never, we never do. It's a certainty for everybody. And yet, as Christians, we are not defined by or identified with our problems. Paul Tripp, as I mentioned in this book, who is a, uh, a Christian counselor and an author, has written a number of books. But he says that for many people, their sense of who they are, their sense of who they are has been shaped by their problems. That is, the longer we struggle with a problem, the more likely we are to define ourselves by that problem, whether it is divorce, uh, addiction, depression, codependence, ADD, or those kind of things. We identify ourselves as things like an addict or a depressed person or so on and so forth. We we, We begin to identify ourselves with those problems. And he goes on to say, unfortunately, many people leave God out of the story when they talk about their troubles. They're preoccupied by the sins of others and the difficulties of the situation. But if there is no God in their story, there will be no biblical sense of identity. Because biblical identity is always rooted in him. And I said in that little short article, your struggle is not who you are. There are some people in here who maybe can't relate to that statement as well as other people can. But for a long time, you have not been able to think of yourself apart from a struggle that has so defined you in your life. You are not your struggle in in spite of the fact that you almost cannot think of yourselves apart from it. Who you think you are will make all the difference when it comes time to face those struggles in life. And the truth is, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You are a child of God, a child of the king of the universe that we just sang about. Behold him now, the king has entered in, and he's your father. You are his child. And listen, that is not just a nice metaphor. Okay, that is not just metaphorical language that somehow encourages us or uplifts us. It is a statement of reality. It's a statement of truth that for the believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child and heir of the king of the universe. And two of our greatest challenges in life are believing that that's true and then living as if it's true. And you talk about something, uh, I think, for 
many Christians, maybe most Christians, we never arrive at a point in life where that's not a struggle to always believe that and live as if that's true. You can, you can, you can go through a season where you've sort of laid hold of that and before you know it, you've, you've sort of lost your grip on it. Where did it go? I feel the same sort of despondency and, you know, self-defeat as I, as I have in the past. Believing it, though, and living as if it's true are two of our greatest challenges and two of our greatest needs. What do you suppose you would do if you received word that you had an exceedingly rich and powerful relative who had died, and in his will, he adopted you and made you his primary heir. What do you suppose you would do? If I received word that I had an exceedingly rich and powerful relative, I would be shocked. It didn't even matter if he said anything about me. That would just be incredible news, knowing my bio. But, but what if? What, what, do you, what do you suppose you would do if you received piece of certified mail from an attorney and you open it up and it said you've been named in a will adopted and made an heir of somebody rich and powerful and that there was you know wealth and really status to go with that you know lord of you know Wessex or something you know Canterbury I mean not just you know the Capo of Myrtle Grove or Monkey Junction or whatever, you know, something real like. That, that actually happened to the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, who we read about in Luke chapter 2, when in the, uh, the story of Jesus' birth, that at the time when he was emperor, that's when Jesus was born, the first Roman emperor. He was also known as Octavian. But um, he had been living and studying abroad at the age of 18 when he heard that his great uncle, Julius Caesar, had been murdered on the Ides of March, you remember from your Shakespeare studies. Upon his return to Italy, he would learn that in Julius Caesar's will, he had adopted Octavian as his son. And named him as his primary heir. Now he was already a man of some status. His father uh, who was deceased at that time had been a Roman senator. I mean he was, he was obviously part of a connected family. Uh, Julius Caesar had taught him a lot growing up in, in different kinds of ways. But he did not in any way uh, deserve that status that he didn't even know had been given to him until after Julius Caesar's death. In fact, uh, some people in his family discouraged him from going to Rome and acknowledging himself as Caesar's heir. He said, some way, if you can, just sort of get a hold of the wealth, but don't go get, you know, tangled in that mess, which would be like, a, that would be a reasonable Suggestion, wouldn't it be? Like, how much promise was there for the heir of a man who had just been assassinated out in the open? But he did go. He did go. And claimed that. He received that. And sort of lived into that. Vast wealth was given to him. Not, 
not immediately, actually. Uh, somebody tried to withhold it from him, but it, vast wealth was given to him, and exceptionally high status was bestowed upon him. He did begin to live into that status. You know, I thought about it. It's like it, would, it sort of takes an 18-year-old to do that, doesn't it? Like the, the, the sort of sense of in, invincibility uh, of 18 to go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it, you know? He's, he rode right into the middle of that, accepted it, uh, lived into it, such that over time he gained the loyalty of many of Julius Caesar's troops as well as numerous prominent senators and eventually, over a number of years, would consolidate power and become the first Roman emperor. And many would say the greatest Roman emperor. Adopted and made an heir by a very rich and powerful king. What do you suppose you would do if you received word that that was your story? Probably, chances are, many of us uh, would have a hard time. Uh, I, we probably wouldn't have a hard time receiving the wealth. <laughs> we might have a hard time seeing ourselves as a nobleman or a noblewoman in some way that would sort of live into the honor that came with that. But that really is our identity. Spiritually, we have been, through the death of Christ and through our faith in him, made to be children of God and joint heirs with Jesus. He uses, the Bible uses that language over and over and over. We have been given an inheritance. And we have a hard time actually believing that. We somehow can use the language, again, metaphorically. We have a really hard time believing it as a reality and an even harder time living into that as a reality. And so I think this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, tells us at least five things we need to know about our new identity as children and heirs of the king. Number one, you need to know that your new identity has been divinely established by divine power and authority. It's been divinely established. You are a child of the king because God, by his divine power and authority, declared it to be so. And made you so. It says in this opening verse. His divine power has granted. Let me think about it in Julius Caesar's case. Um, he, didn't, he didn't ask Octavian. If he was interested. In being a son and heir. Or willing to sign off on it. He said so in his, in his will. He got to decide who was his heir. He declared it, decreed it. And God has, by his divine power, 
granted this divine identity to us. That word granted uh, often is used to mean uh, like officially given or bestowed upon. Uh, the word's used again in verse 4, but it's the same word used when Joseph of Arimathea in, in Mark chapter 15 went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. It says, Pilate granted it to him. Officially gave him permission uh, to take the body. That's the word that's given here. It has been granted to you. So it is true because God said it's true. Do you get that? Nobody can make it untrue, including you. You are a child of God, and you can't make that untrue. You can live as if it's not true. You can fail for all of your life to really uh, receive the fullness of that truth, but you can't make it untrue. Your, your inheritance doesn't have an expiration date. If you haven't claimed it yet, it's still yours for the claiming. You may go on for years, just sort of leaving it on the table, so to speak. The adversary, the devil himself, will try to convince you it's not true. Now and later, will we'll, we'll sort of assault you at the point of your identity. Other people may discourage you, give you reason to doubt that yourself, but nobody can make it untrue. God has divinely established that identity. Number two, you need to know that you have been given a royal identity. It's not only that you have a new identity established by God's divine power, but it is a royal when it, by the way, this passage uh, itself doesn't use um, the language of uh, king and royalty and so on, except down uh, in verse 11, it refers to our entry into an eternal kingdom. But, it, but, but God is a king, and the, and the kingship of Jesus is spoken everywhere. You can't, you, you, again, can't separate him from that um, truth about him. But we've been given this royal identity that is an identity that is connected to his. Verse 3 says we've been called by and to his own glory and excellence, depending on what translation you have. The ESV that I read says to his own glory and excellence. Uh, other translations say by. It actually, uh, in the, the Greek word, can mean either one of those. And re really both of those fit. That from his nature as glorious and excellent and his, his station as uh, glory uh, and excellent in glory and excellence. He called us to himself and all that he is and all that he has. Called by that glory and excellence and to it. And that he has made us partakers of his divine nature. That is an absolutely profound statement. And that's why I say this, this passage is loaded with so much, I can't, can't possibly even speak to it all. But it says um, that, that he has uh, made it so that through his precious and very great promises in verse 4, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
we don't become gods, as it were, but there is something about his divine nature that becomes our nature. We are changed by being joined to him. And this is, this is something uh, that the, this hints in the direction of uh, all the ways that the New Testament talks about our being in Christ. That's said so many times you can't even count it. But that, that through our faith in Christ, we, we, are, we live in Christ. We're joined to him. We become partakers of his divine nature. That, be, that becomes our identity. You are not the same person you used to be before you believed. You are not. Hey, you are not the same person you used to be. So you might feel like, you, you may not feel any different. Well, once again, you may have felt different yesterday. And then today came. Right? And you go through those cycles and that kind of thing. You, you may not feel different, but you are different. You've been given a royal identity. Number three, you have been given all the resources you need to live into that truth. This is one of the, I, I don't know, I've got like 130 favorite Bible passages, you know. I guess where you just like at some point favorite doesn't even mean anything. But like this is, this is, this makes a top something list here. He has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness, you already have them. Is that not mind-boggling? He has already given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. So how many things pertaining to life and godliness have been withheld from us? None. Not one. Imagine again if you received that letter I spoke of earlier, that you were an adopted child, an heir of uh, some royal, a member of a royal family, and uh, you were now a noble. And there was an estate that now belonged to you. Not only the wealth of that inheritance, but an estate. It was yours to enjoy and yours to manage. You're lord of the house. And you might say, in that situation, I don't know anything about being a noble or like I don't even know how to act. I wouldn't even know where am I supposed to go in public and what am I supposed to wear and how am I supposed to act. I don't even know anything about being a noble, much less how to manage an estate. And the person guiding you through that conversation would say, that's okay. Because you have tutors to teach you. They're part of, part of your staff. There are people whose job it is to teach royalty how to become royalty. There are people who can teach you that. There's a staff that will help you manage everything. You don't, you don't have to worry about what you don't know how to do. 
There's somebody who knows how to do it. You don't need to worry about not having the resources. All the resources are there. There's the money, the authorization, the, uh, the, the know-how, and all that kind of stuff. There is nothing you lack. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of offering this extended metaphor to try to give us something concrete to attach our understanding to because, because we have such a hard time believing this truth truth about ourselves and living into it. But there is nothing you lack. For the person who feels always defeated, for the person, uh, if not always, every single day at every moment, they feel like, uh, you know, I'm always dragged right back down into the same old pit and I'm, uh, it'll never be any better and never be any different. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. You know, he just lives... Um, so defeated so often who feels like I just can't. I don't have what it takes. You do have what it takes. You have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. You have them all. You don't lack anything. You have all the resources you need to live into the reality that you are a child of the king who has a great inheritance. That's number three. Number four, you've been given responsibility. This state is not just yours to enjoy, it's yours to manage. <laughs> Verse, verses five through seven uh, begin with, or verse five begins with, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort. Make every effort. That's a, that's a word. That, in fact, some translations would say something like giving all diligence. But the connotation of that is that there, there's something we have to do and something we actually have to work at. This is not a matter of we just sit and wait till we feel royal. That ain't going to happen. We don't sit until we just feel godly or just act godly on the days we feel godly. Or act like people of faith on the days where we feel full of faith. Or exercise self-control when we feel like being self-controlled and so on. There, there, there isn't, we don't, we don't just wait until he does all of that. There's something for us to do and, and we have to be diligent about it. Make every effort. We don't just passively participate. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are things that we can and must do, practice, exercise. We add these to our faith. I'll tell you another thing about our faith, which is an extraordinary statement that's not even in this passage that I read this morning, but in verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, Peter, the apostle Peter, Saint Peter, as some would call him, that Peter said, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Peter said, your faith 
in Christ is of equal standing with his. He's not super Christian. He's not, you know, uh, press, box, press box privileges Christian and you, you know, sit down in the end zone or whatever, you know, seating. Uh, you have a faith already equal of equal standing with the apostles and we're told to add to that faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Any of those words we could unpack and study further and we don't have time to do that today. But really the point we do need to take away is that we have a responsibility and that's actually good news. There is something you can do when you don't feel like you're a child of God, like you deserve to be a child of God, like if you don't see any evidence around you that you have an inheritance and don't think you really deserve one and aren't sure you even know how to obtain it. Uh, the good news is um, there is something you and I can be diligent at, and that is adding to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And you can come back to that list uh, not that that's an exhaustive list of everything it means to be a follower of Christ, but there is a list of seven things we can devote ourselves to, knowing that uh, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. We've got all the resources we need in, in order for that to make us uh, more like Jesus in our own life of Godliness and royalty. Number five, you need to know that you've been given reassurance, even of what I just said. Look at verse eight. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian at one time or another goes through seasons of being at least less effective and less fruitful, if not almost entirely ineffective and unfruitful. Every Christian goes through those, those kinds of seasons. Some really live there, and, and the reason why any of us live there is because these qualities of virtue and so on Either we don't have or they're not increasing in our life. Because if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He offers that reassurance. If we pursue these uh, qualities by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, because all that's been given to us has been given to us by grace, that if we do that, we will become effective and fruitful. I mean, you, you probably know of certain uh, bad habits you can fall into as far as like diet and fitness goes, right? And, and, and how, how easy it is to get out of shape, how hard it is to get in shape. But you know the sort of bad habits that you can fall into and maybe, you know, you start, the waistline starts showing that you 
you know, telling you at least, maybe it's not showing others, but it's telling you, ah, I've fallen into some bad habits. And you know, probably know the short list of things you can do to begin to change that immediately. Because you know, you know what you've been eating that you ought not to be in eating. You know what you've not been eating that you should have been eating. You know you've not been active enough and you just need to get active. And like you can, you can do those things and immediately start to see improvement. To one degree or another, and I know some people lament the fact that they see uh, improvement slowly, and so don't, 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 don't let me lose you on that point. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm simply wanting to illustrate there um, that, that when we are ineffective and unfruitful in our walk, and when we just don't feel like and don't see evidence around us in our own life that we are who God says we are, the thing we can do um, is increase uh, the exercise of these qualities of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and so forth because we are who God says we are and we have all the resources we need for life and godliness. And so we just, with discipline, and diligence, do the things that he's told us to do with the reassurance that if these qualities are yours and increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective. Because he says in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed uh, from former sins. He's so nearsighted that he's blind. He's, he's lost sight of what God has done already. Lost sight of what Jesus has done, what, what he said is true about him, and who he is. And so it brings us right back around to the beginning. You are not your problem. You, you are not identified with or defined by your problem. You are not your depression. You are not your mental illness. You are not your addiction or your learning disability. You are a child of God who may struggle with any of those things. As we were talking about this in our small group, one of the things I reflected on, remembered, was uh, at a, a trip up to um, Monticello in Virginia as they're doing a guided tour and talking about um, you know, all of the uh, all, all the people that worked that plantation and that kind of thing. At the end of the tour, I, I, I said to the tour guide, hey, I noticed that um, this whole time you never referred to slaves, but you referred to them as enslaved people. And she said, yes, because words matter, don't they? And because even though that was their position at that time in their life, that didn't define who they are. They were enslaved people, but that didn't identify them as slaves. Again, that's, uh, I offer that maybe as just an analogy to say, you may be a child of God who struggles with depression, a child of God who struggles with mental illness, who's re recovering from addiction, who sort of struggles with attention uh, issues, and so forth. 
but you are not those problems. You're not a lost cause. You're not hopeless and worthless or whatever thing somebody told you a long time ago and for many, many years. There is somebody here, I suspect, who at a very uh, early age had a learning disability, maybe at a time when learning disabilities weren't even diagnosed. But you had a learning disability and struggled legitimately in school in such a way that it frustrated your parents, frustrated your teachers, and very quickly your relationship with your parents uh, became defined by all of the disappointment and the guilt and the shame associated with the problems you had in school. And from as, as long as you can remember, you've thought of yourself as worthless, a lost cause, hopeless in many regards or whatever. And, and, and again, it for, for so much of your life that you can't separate yourself from that learning disability. That is not who you are. God said so. And it doesn't matter who else said otherwise. It doesn't matter if you think otherwise. And it doesn't matter if it's still hard for you to believe. It is true because God said it's true and made it true by his power and by his authority. You are his. You have all that belongs to him. You have the inheritance jointly with Jesus himself. You have a new identity. And the challenge to you and to me and the invitation to you and to me is to believe it and begin to live into it. Today is a new, a new day to live into our new identity. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your very great and precious promises that you have just given to us, lavished upon us in all of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that by your divine power, you have granted to us, officially bestowed upon us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And God, I do pray I do pray for everyone here, Lord, in whatever way this truth translates, whatever the obstacles are that need uh, to be broken down, removed, shattered uh, in order for the, the light of truth to shine through, God, I pray that you would get it through, that it would be a new day and a new season for some to live into a new identity, that this would be uh, their confession day by day, that I am who you say I am, who you've made me to be. I have what you say I have. And Lord, I will not hold you in contempt by refusing 
to receive what you've given me by your grace at the high price of the death of Jesus himself. So God, would you show us how one by one to live into that truth for Christ's sake. Amen.